The way we take care of ourselves is ever evolving. And what we know for sure is that our mind and spirit are linked to our physical body and that our wellness seems to extend into our communities and the planet we all share. It is very, very clear that wellness is interconnected. We love spending time with you to explore and practice the breakthroughs, the insights, and the passions of incredible people helping us all see the world in a whole new light. This is HealthGig. Dora and I are really excited today about our guest on HealthGig. It is our great friend, Lynn Mento, who founded an organization called Conservation Nation, and we can't wait for you to hear about Conservation Nation. So welcome, Lynn Mento, Yay, Lynn to our Mento. podcast, to HealthGig. <laughs> yes. I'm so excited to be Yay. here. Hey, We're so happy you're here. Trisha and I are especially excited because Lynn is someone we work with, but she's also a good friend. So thanks, Lynn, for coming on. Thank you, Dora and Trisha. I'm so happy to be here. We have been working very closely with Lynn these past couple of years and with the organization Conservation Nation. Lynn, can you tell everybody what is Conservation Nation, how we got started, and where we want to go? As you know, the health of our planet is in decline, and we all know about climate change issues, and biodiversity loss is a huge issue, and that's what the three of us have been fighting for, to help save biodiversity and save the planet for our children and children to come. And Conservation Nation's specific role in that fight is to make sure that we have as many people with diverse perspectives and views and solutions at the table. And so what we're doing is just focusing on lifting barriers to allow for a larger, stronger, more inclusive community of wildlife champions to take on this biodiversity loss fight today and in the future. Why does Conservation Nation need to exist? What's been happening? So wildlife has been decreasing at just a precipitous rate. By some accounts, about 80% of all wildlife is lost already in this world. And as climate change exacerbates, we will be seeing more and more wildlife loss. And that's coming from environmental issues. It's coming from habitat loss. It's coming from poaching. It's coming from land being used for agriculture. And as this is happening, the biodiversity is decreasing it can seem trivial and one-off. You know, you lose a little butterfly or a caterpillar, and what difference can that possibly make? But it makes an enormous difference because each individual species has a role within this delicate web of biodiversity. And you lose one, and then you begin to lose those that feed on that, and those that feed on that, and that, and all the way up the chain. And the web of biodiversity begins to unravel, and then the planet simply won't be sustainable and healthy for our children to come. We talk a lot about One Health and the impact of all of this on all the other living beings, but on us too. Can you talk about that? It has such a huge impact, Trisha. So as you know, we've been working so closely on this. You know, sometimes we tend to say, well, people are here and wildlife is here and, and never the twain shall meet. And that's simply not true. So what's happening is that as people are encroaching into wildlife space, we're building more agricultural land, we're building more communities, we're building more commercial developments. As we're moving into that wildlife space, we are becoming much closer with them. And about 30% of all new diseases are seeing an increase because of our encroachment 
into the wildlife space. So 70% of diseases typically are coming from animals. So they're called zoonotic diseases, and people are getting them from animals. So Ebola, AIDS, SARS, COVID, all of these are really good examples of zoonotic diseases. And so as we're moving closer and closer to these animals, we're interacting more. We're in their space. They're not moving into our space. We're becoming closer together. And these zoonotic diseases are jumping over from animals into people. And we're seeing this. There's been a 30% increase in all of this. So what's so important is that we realize that, as you two say, wildlife health and human health and planetary health are completely linked together. And we need to be protective of wildlife to save ourselves. Gosh, you know, again, we've been doing this work, seeing this work, in which we should talk about the work that we're doing. But when you put it like that, Lynn, I mean, it really is... Something we all need to be aware of for all health, for our planet. So like you said, for everybody, all beings health. For everybody. And, you know, 70% of all cancer drugs have been derived from animals or plants. So basically from wildlife. And over a quarter of all prescription drugs come from plants and animals. And so as we lose these species, we don't really understand the impact of it. There could be some incredible cancer drug that's out there just waiting and we've lost the species. You know, there's a very rare bacteria in the ocean that they are now believing can be the key to a melanoma cure. We don't even understand the implication of what we're losing to say nothing of all of the other reasons why the biodiversity is so important that we do see the things like the pollinators. A huge portion of the food that we eat, by some accounts, over 80% of the food we eat is pollinated by animals, wildlife. And we desperately need that. We need those bees. We need the animals that are eating the seeds and then dispersing them in order to have the food that we need to eat and stay healthy. So what are some of the things that just a single person can do to help with the biodiversity issues? There's a lot. And I know it can seem so depressing sometimes, you know, if you feel like this weight of this huge global biodiversity loss, but it is absolutely not hopeless. The three of us, as we built this organization, have really relied on hope. And it's so important and it's so true. So over 40 species have been saved from extinction because of conservation efforts recently over the last few years. So it happens we're able to save species. And so what people can do individually can have a huge impact. One of the big things people can do is eat less meat, for example. You know, this is such a funny statistic, but if cows were a country, they would be the third largest climate change gas emitter. And so if you just eat a little bit less red meat, one less steak, one less burger a week, a month, whatever suits you, that will have a direct impact on ensuring that we have fewer cows and the landscape is being saved for wildlife, not for agriculture and their food. You can certainly do all of your recycling. So plastic in the ocean is having an impact because the animals are eating the plastic and then they're having issues and then you're just seeing that cascade everywhere. You can certainly do local cleanups, so cleanup of a park so there's less for birds to be eating that they shouldn't be eating, cleanup of a shoreline. You can give money in support of an organization that's working to fight biodiversity. That's hugely important. And I would say when you're traveling, just be aware of supporting those things that will help save animals, and there's many opportunities for that. And Conservation Nation is doing their work or our work in kind of a unique way. 
And can you talk about why we think diversity is important now more than ever among conservationists? We are at a place where it's not good. If it was a business, you would look back and you would say, okay, what do we need to do? What's changed? What's not? You know, how are we keeping up? So can you talk about how we do this? Because of the size of the biodiversity challenge at hand, we need everybody. So you've probably heard about the 1.5 Celsius degree cap that we need for climate change to make climate change work for the planet. Well, we will never hit that cap if we do not also solve biodiversity. In order to take on both these challenges of biodiversity and the impact on climate change, because it's these animals that are helping to contribute to carbon sequestering and saving the planet. It's a huge, huge challenge. And in order to have a fighting chance at this, we just believe so strongly, don't we, that we need every smart voice and solution and perspective at the table. The field of conservation has traditionally been a field of exclusion, not a field of inclusion. The doors have been small and the barriers have been large. So what happens is that because of its historic legacy as a kind of a privileged, white, and often male field, what we see in conservation is not a particularly diverse field. In fact, environmental science is the least diverse higher education major in our country. And so what happens is you don't have as many people in the fight as you need, and those people who are in the fight tend to come from the same groups. And we know from scientific research that when you have diverse perspectives focused on a scientific challenge, you get more innovative solutions. That's proven. So we believe so strongly that we need more people in the fight and we need those people to bring in diverse perspectives and opinions. And, you know, even if we look at the U.S. in 2030, I'm going to say 80 percent of the U.S. population will be women or people of color. And it's crazy to think that this enormous global challenge, I would argue the largest certainly of our lifetime, perhaps ever, will be restricted to this tiny percentage of people who could come in and join the fight. So talk about some of the exciting things and programs that Conservation Nation is doing to contribute to this issue. We're working primarily to raise those barriers that will allow all of those people that we need into the fight. One of the first barriers happens when children don't have equitable access to nature, so it's a privilege to have access to nature, to have a park, have a backyard, have somebody in your life who can take you to a green area, a place where you feel comfortable in green spaces. And that's really a place of privilege. And so what we're trying to do is to get children who do not have equitable access into nature, into nature, so they can have these same awe-inspiring experiences. And we know from our research that the number one reason why people say they became conservationists and wildlife champions is because as a small child, they had an awe-inspiring experience in nature. So we have a program that's doing that through field trips for these children. We have another program that's focused on middle schoolers. So when girls in particular hit middle school, their confidence and their ability to stay in STEM drops precipitously. This always gets me when you talked about the statistics. I can't believe it, but please share it. It's so true. So there's this famous draw scientist, a longitudinal study. It's a global study. And they basically just ask children with a blank piece of paper, draw a scientist. And they ask children at various ages. And when girls are six, 75% of them draw a female scientist, which is great. When girls are in middle school, only 25% of them draw a female scientist. 
And these are the girls that we need who will become the future wildlife champions who will come up with these solutions to help save biodiversity and the planet for our our grandchildren and great-grandchildren to come. And so what we're doing for these middle school girls is boosting their confidence, inspiring them that they can be wildlife champions and conservationists. And we do that by showing them these counter-stereotypical role models. It's not just the white man. It's women. It's people of color. It's those who look like you and walk past like you. So that's a middle school program. We call that the Conservation Nation Academy. And we're in about 50 classrooms right now in the Washington, D.C. area. And we're hoping to roll that out nationally. Yeah. And that's been so much fun to see roll out and to watch the young girls or the young women really spark to what we talk about. And specifically, I'm talking about like the Washington Girls School and the programs that we've had there and to see these young women so interested in possibly being a scientist and maybe a conservationist. You guys talk about Taylor and how she came and what happened, because this is so adorable. She's amazing, isn't she? And do you remember when we were at that Washington School for Girls with Taylor and we were all teary-eyed? Yeah, We all got yes, teary-eyed over the yes. enthusiasm and inspiration that you could see with your eyes and with your heart. And really, Trisha, you should be talking about Taylor. She's incredible. <laughs> I love our Taylor. I love our we Taylor. love our Taylor. And all of our fellows, but yes. Taylor, and it was Trisha who found Taylor. So Taylor Raby, she was volunteering out at Yellowstone National Park as a wolf technician, a wolf biologist. And Taylor had hit one of these barriers that we talk about head on. So Taylor came from, you know, a difficult upbringing in Ohio. So the dad was in the prison system and she was raised by her grandmother. And Taylor is brilliant and got a full scholarship, knew she wanted to work with animals, majored in zoology, headed out to Yellowstone to see if she could work with the wolves and gets out there and hits this barrier head on that 80% of conservationists reported that they worked for free for over a year. I mean, it's just bonkers, the privilege that this takes. So Taylor, of course, goes out there and says, I'd love to work for the Yellowstone Wolf Project. And they're an incredible organization. And they were able to take Taylor on, but they could only take her on for free. That's how the finances worked. And so Taylor was volunteering 40 hours a week for free. And after three years, she told Trisha, I thought this was my passion, my reason for being on earth. And I don't think I can do it any longer. And so thanks to Trisha and Doro and others, we were able to find the funding for Taylor and negotiate her first paying job at the Yellowstone Wolf Project. We were so happy, you know, we got her over that barrier and she's just doing an amazing job. And again, the Wolf Project folks are incredible. Incredible. It's just the way the system works, right? right. It was great to watch this work and have it in action actually make a difference, you know? And then to see our other fellows that we work with, the work they're doing. And and what we've learned, I think, through these past couple of years is, and it's always been something I think we've known, but education matters. You know, like we need to understand, Lynn, what you shared at the very beginning. I mean, this is really important. And a lot of us need to kind of wake up to it and see what we can do and then educate ourselves and educate our children and those that haven't had the chance to have this as an opportunity for a career. Can we just back up for one minute and talk about what Trisha calls wolf magic? (laughs) I mean, because the whole wolf thing appeared at Conservation Nation in so many serendipitous ways. So what is wolf magic? Wolf magic is just this incredible 
energy and enthusiasm that we have tapped into coming off of this idea of saving, helping to save the wolves, the American wolves. And they were hunted to the point of extinction back in the early 20th century. And fortunately, brought back by some brilliant conservationists and biologists who said, we need these wolves back. And what's so interesting about it is we not only need the wolves back because they're majestic, important creatures, but we need the wolves back because they help save that ecosystem. The wolves create that ecosystem. And when the wolves were not there, the Yellowstone ecosystem and several other ecosystems in the American West started to disintegrate. So the wolves were not there to hunt the elks. So the elks were overgrazing on the land, which was choking the river. It's called a trophic cascade. You had this trophic cascade of negative implications coming from not having wolves. They saved the ecosystem. And we, thanks to Trisha, have tapped into this wolf magic and enthusiasm to save this beautiful species and save the ecosystem in which they live. And it's complicated. Wolves have this interesting history where they are, you know, when we were kids, our parents read us books about the big bad wolf and the wolf that's, you know, blowing down the houses and eating grandmas, <laughs> hunting little red whiting and all the rest of it. So it's complicated. And we know that wolves are eating some of the cattle that are out there with the ranchers, but we've moved into their space. And we have to respect them just as much as we're asking them to respect us. And so we tap into this magic of the wolves by showing them as an iconic species, saving them, and then sort of leveraging this energy that people have about wolves. And Trisha used to talk about it because once you yes. saw those wolves, I think you changed. <laughs> yes. I think so. I think so. So again, learning about a species is so incredible because you begin to see that we do share this land with that we are together oh my gosh now all of a sudden we're learning that it's a matriarch society that there's actually are there feelings they live in a community it's a family and it just for me ended up showing the interconnectedness that we are so connected and the wolves have been just such great teachers to me and i think to, obviously to so many people and they have taught us a lot. And actually, as Lynn said, it's been amazing because the wolves, how we learned about them and they came into our world, conservation nation world, started showing us that, you know, things do need to change. We do need diversity. We do need different ways to count the wolves to determine how many can be hunted. There's just all kinds of things that actually need to change. And I think that it symbolizes conservation nation in so many ways because we're saying we need to respect the past. But gee, let's not repeat a lot of that. Let's see what we can do to do it better. And maybe in doing that better, we all become healthier. And the wolf magic, I don't know, did that take us to Saudi Arabia, ladies? <laughs> I think it did. So we have been like learning about the animals going extinct and actually yes. going up and seeing that, right? I'll never well, forget. Well, let's tell, tell, tell yeah, you, you our tell audience <laughs> what we did. We went on sort of a delegation to Saudi Arabia to go see the Saudi Arabian leopards. There are 19 in captivity. They are working to rewild them into the area where they once were. We were lucky enough to go see the scientists and the people working on all of that. So with the Conservation Nation Education Program, we want to inspire all children to see themselves as wildlife champions. We want to make sure 
that girls in particular are seeing a buildup in their confidence because we know that girls in particular more than boys struggle with the psychological aspects of staying in STEM, but we want all children to become wildlife champions. And didn't we in Saudi Arabia meet the first woman conservationist in the country? We did. Wasn't she incredible? She really was. We know that women have different perspectives than men. We see that in so many aspects of our life, and there's no reason not to understand that that happens in the world of conservation, too. Let's talk about the collectives. Lynn, can you describe what the collectives are and how they work? It's a great program, Doro. So what we created at Conservation Nation was an opportunity for an individual, a family, a group of friends to come together with us and with Conservation Nation and co-create and then own a project with Conservation Nation that sits at this intersection of saving the planet and creating a more equitable world and taps into a particular passion of theirs so that they and their family can have really a direct, meaningful utterly unique experience in leaving a legacy of helping to save a species and help uplift a voice. So we started this about two years ago. It's hard to believe, isn't it, ladies? About two years ago. And we have two underway. One is focused on, we call it people in pachyderms, and it's dedicated to helping save elephants and rhinos in East Africa and uplifting the voices of Maasai and Samburu people, particularly women, who need an equitable boost to get into conservation. And we're doing incredible work. So we've supported several groundbreaking direct on the field conservation workers who are working to save elephants and rhinos and some lovely education programs that are also focused on bringing girls into the field of conservation. Gosh, we've talked combined to about 2,000 Maasai and Samburu children through the wildlife clubs that we created with the collective. So it's been amazing. And then the other collective, it's a wolf magic collective. And the other collective <laughs> it is, is, it is, we call that the Rewilding Collective. And that's focused on rewilding our children and then saving the rewilded wolves of the American West. For the rewilding our children, it's really focused on that first barrier of getting kids who don't have equitable access to nature out into nature. And so working with several lovely organizations with their children, getting them on field trips, local field trips, and then out west and out to Yellowstone give them an opportunity to sit directly with Taylor and see the wolves and talk about the biodiversity and the bioacoustic work that she's up to, and then focused on layering in mindfulness for these children. So one of the things we know, particularly for children who come from a background of trauma or communities that are struggling, they do not have this access to nature. And because they don't, they're not getting those psychological benefits that children get from being in nature. There are many studies that show that when children are in nature, their anxiety goes down, their confidence goes up, their ability to concentrate goes up, their sense of confidence and independence rises. All of these things we want in our children, and they get that naturally and organically from being outdoors. And so we know there's value in getting kids outdoors. And then we know that there is some magic when you combine mindfulness with being in nature and these children have the ability to not only get these physical, physiological, psychological benefits of being in nature, but also get mindfulness training on top of it, learning to breathe, learning to tap into their deeper roots and understand. Trisha, as you've said, we are nature. And what an insightful and powerful thing for them to believe. So helping them reach that with being in nature and mindfulness and then helping to save the wolves of Yellowstone. And Trisha, you're so close to this. We're funding a bioacoustic study, which is quite cool. And it is about 
hearing, listening to the wolves, hearing the wolves, and then using that knowledge, what we are hearing, and running that through AI, and then understanding everything from how many wolves there really are. So as you said at the start, Trisha, it's limiting the cap on how many wolves can be killed, but also starting to understand what they mean, what they're saying, how they're communicating. And again, Dora, when we were talking about it, you're like, wow, that is mindful. Like that is listening, hearing, pausing, breathing. It's just incredible how that is a tool, as you're saying, Lynn, in this bioacoustics initiative. Lynn and Tricia talk about the amazing partnership we have with William and Mary. And just after we're taping this podcast, we're going to be moving into a really... I'm so proud I did my homework. You guys said you did yours too. <laughs> Still doing it. Oh, it's so much fun. So it, it is, is a program fun. that uh, we set up with these Conservation Nation collectives where we partnered with William and Mary and created the first ever certificate program from William and Mary's Institute for Integrative Conservation, which is run by the amazing Dr. Robert Rose and Dr. John Swaddle. And so what they have done in partnership with us is build sort of a eight to 10 week certificate program that helps us understand what it means to be a conservationist. What are all these concepts of biodiversity? How do we think about and help save elephants and rhinos in East Africa, for example? And so as part of our first collective, People in Pachyderm, we did a People in Pachyderm executive certificate with William and Mary. And we're so excited right now because as part of that, we got to help select a project that some of these William and Mary budding conservationist students will be doing out in Africa. So we're sending them out to Africa. They're going to meet with our partners. And we've got the youth voice and energy and these young emerging conservationists helping to solve these problems. So we did that one. We loved it. I have my certificate frame. And we have one underway right now that we have just right after this podcast. And that one's on rewilding. This particular one this week will be on historical exclusion in nature and therefore conservation. You know, the U.S. has a kind of a lousy legacy in this regard. And so it's trying to fix that, be aware of it, and once again, provide equitable support. So we're all in this together. So Lynn, why don't we share too how we are helping current conservationists, people doing the work, back to these barriers that we have found that we're just exclusively focused on, there are two that happen with conservationists. So even if, say you're from an underrepresented group and you've made it all the way through those other barriers and you want to find a position for yourself, you hit that barrier we talked about with Taylor head on. So you can't afford to work for free or you work for free for 40 hours and then you get a 40-hour paying job like the rest of us mortals and you're fried and that's no way to live. So for that barrier, what we do is we provide fellowships, scholarships, internships, little micro grants. Sometimes these conservationists have everything they need, but they can't afford the boots to get out into the field. And so they can't go out into the field on a trip so little microgrants that help that. And then when they've made it all the way up into the field, the very last barrier is that conservationists, particularly from underrepresented groups, don't feel like they belong. They don't feel comfortable. And sometimes that's even feelings of physical safety. You're alone in the dark in a part of rural America and you don't look like perhaps those people in rural America right there. And we've seen this, you know, over the last five years, we've seen some of this unfold. And so they don't feel like they belong. They don't feel safe. And so what we're working to do is to create a larger community 
of conservationists from underrepresented groups so that they do see that they belong. And we're providing networking and mentorship and professional development and free classes. We've got a National Geographic Explorer who focuses on storytelling, and she's helping them understand how to tell their stories, for example. So we have about 350 conservationists from underrepresented groups in this network, and we're proud of that, aren't we? It's, mm-hmm, it's powerful. Very. Can we also talk about the fellows in our Catmosphere a bit and the work that we're doing with Catmosphere? Yeah, we're so excited about this. So our first fellow was Taylor Raby, who we talked about. And then because of our wonderful friendship with a terrific organization called Catmosphere, which helps save endangered cats, big cats around the globe, we were able to get funding for two additional fellows. So we have Taylor and then we have Yamat Langai who is out in East Africa, and then we have Deepshika, who is working in India. Yamat, our second fellow, is focused on using data to help save endangered animals in East Africa. So sometimes that's elephants, sometimes that's lions. And Yamat's so fascinating because we've had the pleasure to meet her virtually at least, and hopefully we'll see her in person soon. But she is a young woman and she's got, I don't know, three children and she is breaking all kinds of barriers. So she is a Maasai woman and she is breaking a barrier by not only working full time in the field of conservation, but also focusing on technology and data. So we're so proud of Yamat, and we're super excited that Yamat and Taylor are going to get together. So Yamat is going to fly from Tanzania to Yellowstone, spend time with Taylor, and then Taylor and Jeremy are going to fly over to Africa and spend time with Yamat and share the bioacoustics work they're doing, which is happening in Yellowstone and could have some big implications out in East Africa. And then Deepshika, our third fellow, is fantastic and working to save endangered big cats. And we're so excited. We've just started with Deepshika, but we absolutely see an opportunity for Deepshika to do the same thing and fly over and share what she's doing and learning about saving big cats with Yamat and with Taylor. So there's something very magical about our fellows partnering together. It's that youth energy. There's wolf magic and there's youth magic. This new generation that will save the planet for us. So for people who want to know more about Conservation Nation, where can they find information? They can go to conservationnation.org and read all about us. And we would love to know what they think. And you can provide support if you're so inclined through our website and then all of our social media handles. So if you just go out for Conservation Nation, you'll see some of our fabulous social media and what we're up to on a regular basis and sign up for our newsletter and follow along with us. And we would be so thrilled to have other folks in the fold. Thank you, Lynn, for coming on. Help Yes. <laughs> Oh, I just love you. Thanks so much for having me. We love you too. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.